You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Good morning. Hope you guys are all enjoying this beautiful summer weather. I probably shouldn't joke about that. I'm not from Oregon. Some people that have grown up here probably take that really seriously. They're like, it's not funny. The sun's not out. But I, I was born and raised in Vegas, so the sun bullied me for the first 22 years of my life. And if I never saw it again, I'd be perfectly happy. So I'm sorry there's no sun. Seems like every weekend it starts raining again. So my name is Ronnie. If we haven't met, I'm one of the elders here at GCC. If we haven't met, I'd love to get to, to, get to know you and meet you, shake your hand, find out a little bit about you. A little bit about me, Nicole and I, my wife up here, just celebrated 10 years of marriage yesterday. So, yeah. That is 110% a grace of God. Everybody who's been married for quite a while probably understands that. Everything we do here at Gospel Community Church is to make Jesus a hero. Because even in our own lives, in my own marriage, Nicole will tell you, like, I am not the hero of my own life, the hero of my own marriage. If I was, if she saw me as that, or if I thought I was that, we would be in for a lot of disappointment. And so in our own lives, in our marriages, in our families, we look to point to Jesus because he is the ultimate hero of creation. But even everything we do here at Gospel Community Church is to lift up him for what he's done for us. Uh, not any one person, uh, not any person that steps in this pulpit or gets up here and leads worship or serves in many of the different ministries we have here in the church. It's all pointing up and lifting uh, lifting up Jesus. So if you're a guest here today, we hope that comes through in the message. We hope much of Jesus is, is made known, not anyone else. That's our whole aim and goal. If you're a guest, uh, we promise not to do anything weird to you. This is a safe place to come and investigate the claims of Christianity, investigate who Jesus is. This is a great time, actually, because we've been going through a sermon series where we've been looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is his first Big discourse, uh, his longest recorded sermon we have. Uh, we've been going through a, a sermon series entitled Live because the Sermon on the Mount really was about what it looks like to live as a disciple of Christ. So if you're following Jesus, a lot of the Sermon on the Mount is instruction as to like, what does it look like to follow me? What does it look like to be a part of my kingdom, to be a citizen in my kingdom that I'm bringing here on the earth? Part of Jesus' mission was to bring heaven and earth back together again. We see it breaking through even in his ministry, where at the beginning of creation, we have earth and heaven united, but even as, as it was talked about earlier, there was a separation in Genesis 3 at the fall where earth and heaven were kind of torn apart. But we see in Jesus' public ministry, he's breaking through into our world, bringing the kingdom of God as he's healing people. Um, he's teaching them of kingdom values, what it looks like to love one another again and live in perfect harmony and be in communion with God again. So this is all what this sermon uh, that Jesus is delivering is about. And it's what we've been looking at in this sermon series when we're asking the question, what does it look like to live as a Christian? to live as one of Jesus' followers. So we're continuing that today. We left off last week with Brad uh, at Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. That's where we left off. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open with me to Matthew 6, 25, and we're going to be going all the way to 34. If you do not own a Bible, there are a few at the connection table. You can actually take that home, and that's a gift from our church to you. Uh, if you don't have one, take it home. You can write in it. You can put your name in it, highlight it. We'd encourage that. Uh, and as I always say, if you, if you do have a Bible already, please don't steal ours. Bible apps work great. If you have one on your phone, that's 
absolutely appropriate. I won't sit up here and judge you if I see you on your, your phone, unless you're playing a video game. I'm going to dive in. I'm going to read the passage, and then we'll get right into it. So it's Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Picking up where Brad left off last week. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time to come together um, and look at your word, what it has to say. I pray that this would be an encouragement for us, a challenge to us as we examine the words you've given us today on, on being anxious, on being concerned about the things of the future. I pray that we would grow in faith and trusting you and your plan and what you have in store for us. You're a good God who is working all things together for your own glory, but also for the benefit of us. And we thank you for that. We pray that we could rest in that. We pray that we could have great joy in what you're doing in our lives. While we may not see it clearly yet, one day you will reveal all of this to us. And we joyfully wait with hopeful expectation of what you're, you're doing in our lives. Uh, we love you, God. Thank you for this time. Please be with us and speak to us through your word. Amen. So if, you were, if you're here with us last week, you'll remember Jesus closes off this passage last week. And just, you know, if you weren't here with us. He closes off the last passage explaining how our love of money can put us at odds with God. And it's so interesting, just as I was, I was looking back at the passage that Brad preached on last week, if you look at chapter 623, Jesus talks about how if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And I, I think that's fascinating because the eye, seeing something good, and taking hold of that desire is a theme we actually see traced all throughout the Bible, all the way back to Genesis 3. Even what you were talking about earlier, uh, Zach was talking about earlier in, in the fall, Eve saw that the, that the fruit was a delight to the eyes. This was something God uh, it commanded them not to eat. And so instead, there was a different desire in the hearts of men and women, and they, they sought something that was not good. So it's interesting, Jesus connects the love of money back in that passage over and against God to the sin that Adam and Eve actually committed in the garden. And I, and I believe both stem from a lack of trust as a strong connection. When we look back at the passage, and I, well, I think it's very important to look back at the passage that was preached on last week, because verse 25, and the one we're looking at today, opens with the word, therefore. And a lot of you know the basic hermeneutical question you have to ask if you see a therefore. When you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? Very good. Okay. Some of you uh, have grown up in church or Christian culture or whatever, but uh, if you see a therefore, you just have to ask the simple question, what is it there for? Because nobody starts a conversation 
Therefore, you know, you don't just walk into a room and say that. There was something that was said before. So when we look back at the previous passage, we see that your treasure can be destroyed. It can be stolen. If you think about our, our current situation, whatever treasure you have built up and maybe a 401k or something like that, it can be diminished by all different kinds of things like uh, the rising rate of inflation right now. It's not even, you know, it, not only can it rot, not only can it be dis- uh, stolen, but it can even be destroyed by factors far beyond your control. Your love of money and what it can give you, Jesus says, can bring darkness into your whole body, and it will put you at odds with God. He even closes that passage saying that as you struggle to serve one master or the other, you'll begin to hate one as you seek to serve the other. So he puts them against one another. Now, that therefore, because of all these things that Jesus said about money and the love of money, he says in verse 25, do not be anxious. And I, and I, w- I was talking with Jake about, or, uh, I was talking, I shouldn't use names. I'm so bad with names. (laughs) Uh, I was talking with Jake about this the other day. This anxiety, when Jesus says, do not be anxious, we have to be careful because that's kind of a loaded word in our day. I don't think he's talking about general anxiety disorder or something like that, that sometimes would require some kind of counseling. Some people even take medicine for it. Even I I know in our church, some people uh, take medicine for anxiety. I think this is more of a a general anxiety and concern for the things of the future that many of us experience. Not necessarily a a psychological disorder or something that needs counseling, but all of us probably have some, some level of concern for the future, for being able to provide for ourselves and meet ends meet. Like, how am I going to afford to pay the electric bill this month? Or how am I going to, am I going to be able to do the things I want to do in the future? So, so I think most of us do worry about those things. And what does it look like to serve money over God? Jesus says, do not be anxious. And what does he say not to be anxious about? I'm sure you can include in this some things like your bank account, how many digits are on your paycheck, how nice your car is, some of these things. But Jesus actually goes a little bit bigger and then very specific in this passage. When he says, do not be anxious about your life or what you will eat, what you will drink, nor your body, what you will put on. So he starts off big, your life, but then he gets very specific talking about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, a very important thing. And then he goes into your body, what you're going to wear and put on. I believe this whole passage is about accepting the grace with which God has given us and resting in it. As a matter of fact, if I was going to say there's one main message or big overarching idea for this passage, I I would say it's accepting and resting in the grace of God. This is a challenge to Christian maturity. As much as the Sermon on the Mount has been, this is another call to Christian maturity. What's interesting, the Apostle Paul There's different situations we can find ourselves in throughout our lives. And some of you, as you've gotten older, you've probably experienced a little bit of both. But you can face different periods of your life where you're facing plenty. That is, you have enough to pay the bills. You even have a little extra to go enjoy some different things. And sometimes you've probably lived in a little bit of poverty as you struggle to make it through life. Some of us may be even going through that right now. Paul, actually, in Philippians, talks about how he had gone back and forth through both of those scenarios, and he found the secret to contentment in both of those. If you look at Philippians 4.13, the secret, no matter what situation he found himself in, was Christ. In a sense, the secret is a deep understanding of the gospel. You worry about your life? Tell me this. What did you do to deserve it? What did you do before having been brought into existence to bring yourself into it. There's nothing you could have done. You're anxious about what to eat or drink and wear on your body, but who created a world with food and water to fill you and materials to cover you? Everything you have in your whole life, 
from the very fibers in your diet and the fibers in your clothing are a grace from God given to you when you did nothing to earn them. It's, it's funny, we're slightly more mature than children and our demands are a little less silly, at least I would like to believe so. But I see the same, same lack of contentment in my children that I oftentimes see in myself. It's funny, Nicole and I were talking about this earlier this week, but sometimes I even hesitate to like give my kids good things because I see what happens when I do give them to them. Uh, and specifically, we were talking about, my, I think my kids went like the first two years, I think uh, two or three years, the first two or three years of all my kids like living with me, we never put chocolate syrup in their milk. We, we gave them like milk after lunch and dinner, but we never put chocolate syrup in their milk. But for some reason, we just randomly started doing it. Uh, and now they've come to expect it. And one kid in particular, it, like demands it. Like they, if it's not in there, their countenance like drops, they pout, they won't even touch it. It's like a, it's like a big deal. And I know it's, it's not even about the chocolate and the taste and the sweetness of it. Because one time I'm getting to like the end of the milk or the chocolate syrup. Some of you know what I'm talking about where you're squeezing out little chocolate bubbles. You're basically getting nothing out of it. And I come to this one kid's milk and that's, there's like no chocolate going into this thing. And I stir it up and I give them to all the kids. And within a, couple of seconds of me giving them the milk, they come up to me and they go, dad, did you put chocolate in my milk? Like I'm being interrogated now as to whether or not I put chocolate syrup in their milk. And I go, yeah. And they go, okay. And they walked away. They didn't care that it tasted like chocolate syrup. They just wanted to know that I didn't cheat them out of what they deserve. My kids feel cheated when they don't get the things they never really deserved in the first place. And I, and I feel we do the same. I don't think many of us are willing to stand up and admit it, especially as Christians, even more so as, as people that are a part of a very gospel-centered church, a very hyper-grace church. Not to say that it's like a bad thing. It's, it's great we have such a strong emphasis on the gospel. But because of our great emphasis on the gospel and the grace of God and how much we don't deserve it, not many of us are willing to stand up and, and say like, yeah, I don't feel content. I do feel like I deserve more. So it's probably a hard thing to admit. To admit. But I think there is, there is a, a little bit of a lack of contentment in the things we've been given. And we have to ask the question, why do we always want more? And why are we not as willing to let go of some of the things we have? And think about this for a second. When, when you read through this passage and Jesus is telling them not to be anxious about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink and what you're going to wear on your body, Jesus is speaking to people in the first century. Can you imagine what this sermon would sound like for us today living in the West? I mean, you have a device in your hand that can order food from many different restaurants and groceries that can be delivered to your door, bringing an abundance of food that the vast majority of human history hasn't even had the opportunity to sample. I mean, you have to pay for it. But still, that's an incredible service that we like just able to have that thing. I'm pretty sure... You, you can fight with me on this, but I'm pretty sure my life is 99% or my life is better than 99% of the people who have been referred to as king by their subjects throughout human history. If I had the opportunity to live in this current century or be a king in any other, I would, I would prefer to be a person living in the West in the 21st century. I would choose that a thousand times over. We have a lot to be grateful for. And I'm not saying that life is perfect. There are things we still struggle with. I'm just saying it's not BC bad. The truth is, it's a lot better than what I deserve, which is death, non-existence. I, I, mentioned, I feel like I mention this every single sermon. Probably, people are probably tired of me saying this. But like, we come into this world owing a great debt to God that you could never pay. I mean, how precious is a human life? 
You see it all throughout cultures, throughout human history. There has always been some kind of punishment for killing somebody. There's always been some kind of great repercussion for taking human life. And we see even in our own medical expenses and how much we pour, uh, pour money into the medical field, we care about our life. We will spend a lot of money just to prolong it as long as we can, even if it's painful to prolong our life. Sometimes we're willing to dump a lot of money and anguish just to hold on a little bit longer. Life is a very precious thing and nothing we could have done to earn before our having been existed because you, you can't do anything before you, you don't exist. So you come into this life with a great debt. We've been given far more than we could ever deserve. This life and body are both great gifts from God that we didn't deserve and we're also quick to dishonor God with both of them. We worry greatly about what goes in our body, what goes on our body, but both of this, life and body, were made for more than just these things. Both were given to you by God, and, they, and they're precious things to him. Look at verse 26, when he talks about the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And then he says, are you not of more value than they? A rhetorical question, obviously. You know what's interesting about birds and even going forward and looking at verse 28 and flowers? God provides for them. Birds still need to like get up and go look for the food, but it's there. Flowers even more so, God is demonstrating his provision over them. Like they literally do not move. They got the sun, the soil, the water. God is bringing all these things to us. He says that we're of more value than they, and he provides for them everything they need. God has created this incredible ecosystem with so many inner working pieces so that the, countless, so that the needs of countless creatures are met. We're a part of that. I think it's crazy to believe that blind evolution, chance acting on time and matter, knew that one day humans would be here and they would need fruit, vegetables, meat, all of which would be digestible and, and delicious. It's just odd. I'm not buying it. Um, none of the secular explanations for the world around us can explain how moving organisms, bacteria or something like that, all of a sudden decided somewhere along the evolutionary process it would become a good idea to become completely immobile and fruit-bearing vegetation that would also taste very good. Just doesn't make sense to me. Bite into a fresh strawberry picked from some of the fields out here in Oregon and tell me there's not a God. I'm just saying. It's, and the fact that you can make wine from some of that stuff. All right. Moving on to the flowers. Uh, the, the flowers. This is something that's here today. It's gone tomorrow. He says it's just thrown into the oven. Some translations say the fire. And, and God is providing for all these things. He's building the argument. Here's the second interesting thing about birds and flowers. They don't sin against God. They don't stand in abject rebellion against them. A flower doesn't disobey God's command. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. It grows when it's supposed to. It opens when it's supposed to. It does exactly what God commands it to do. We were created in the image of God. We're meant to reflect his nature out into the world, and we misrepresent the character of God constantly when we lie, cheat, steal, rape, murder, cause physical harm to others, have a lack of concern for those that God has called us to care for, like the orphan, the widow, the poor, the sojourner. Now, birds don't necessarily do all that, but flowers literally do none of it. They, they don't sin at all. But yet, Jesus didn't come as a flower to die for flowers. He didn't come as a bird to die for the birds. He came as a, as a human. These humans that stand in rebellion against God, God still came in, entered in, and rescued them from their own sin. But even so, he still considers us of more value than them. And because of this, why wouldn't God meet our needs as well? And even worrying about the future, what really will it do for you? Jesus makes the argument of that in verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? In all our worry, 
we aren't able to add a single minute to our existence. As a matter of fact, from a human perspective, it, it would probably take a little bit of it away and make the time that you do have a little less enjoyable. The truth is your, your, the time of your death has been appointed. Hebrews 9.27 says you, it's been appointed once for a man to die and then comes the judgment. This is something fixed and no amount of undue concern is going to extend that. Jesus' logic here is, I think it's simple. I think it's flawless. It's not easy to follow. It's not easy to take a command like this, say, do not be anxious, and then go and live that out. I'm, not, I'm absolutely not saying that. But I think his logic here is so flawless. If you think about it, your concern for the future will not diminish God's control over it. However, God's control over the future should diminish your concern for it. See how starting with God instead of ourselves changes things? God isn't unaware of your concerns. Look at verse 32. All the, all the things that the Gentiles could seek after, clothing, food, water, a house, you know, their, their 401k or what kind of car they want in the future, some nice toys they want, a boat they can take out on the lake. The Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly father knows you need them all. God created you. He's not shocked and surprised that you need food and water and clothing and things in the future. The Gentiles worry about these things. And many times they worry about these things, the things of life so much, they never even stop to consider the next. And I know people like this. I work with people like this. I think the truth is, for those that they, they're so caught up in this life, they're so busy chasing all these things that they never even think about the life to come, I think the truth is that they're very anxious about the life to come. So anxious that they keep themselves so busy and preoccupied with the things of this world is almost a little bit of a defense mechanism so that they, they don't have to consider what is coming beyond. You know, you kind of block out the things that are harmful and hurtful. I've, I've even noticed when I've had conversations with people I work with, as soon as we start to dive into the eternal things, you get this awkward silence. Maybe some of you have experienced that sometimes when you, somebody manages to bring it up in a conversation and it almost immediately gets quiet, uncomfortable, and awkward because for the first time they're having to put a pause on life and consider, oh yeah, at some point this does end. Like Julius Caesar died a long time ago. He is still dead. It's coming for us all. It's going to, it's, you're going to be dead for a very, very long time. I think many people don't want to wrestle with that fact and, and come to God and ask some serious questions. So they keep themselves busy chasing all these things in life and accumulating all these things and toys to distract them of the truth of the world around them. You can keep yourself busy, as busy as you like. One day, the busyness will stop and you'll stand before God. And I can guarantee you, he won't be impressed with all the things you've accumulated to ensure your pantry and closet are always full. All throughout this sermon, I'm not talking about this sermon. I'm saying the Sermon on the Mount. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus has been delivering this sermon, he's telling us, don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like this. And, and it can sound a little daunting, but what Jesus is really asking and calling us into is he's saying, be a part of my kingdom. Don't be like the world. I'm calling you into something better. I want you to be a citizen of my country and what I'm doing to change the world and bring the peace of God back here. I want you to look like citizens of my kingdom who have the peace of God in them that surpasses all understanding. As Paul talks about again in Philippians 4, 6, when he's talking about the peace that he has in Christ that he can face all these different situations that he comes into. Jesus also does this in verse 32 when it says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. We, we can kind of glance over this because Jesus does it so often and we probably even do it a lot when we pray. He says, heavenly father. But he is our heavenly father. In a couple weeks, uh, it may be, even be next week, I'm not sure who's preaching the passage, but in chapter 7, 
we'll be looking at how much better of a father our heavenly father is compared to us as fathers and our fathers who came before us. He is our father and we are his children. If you're a father in this room, and I'm one myself, I, I have four children if you, if you don't know me. I have a, lot of, a little bit of experience. <laughs> uh, if you're a father in this room, tell me you have no burden whatsoever to provide for the needs of your family and your children. Is there any father in here that doesn't feel a, a desire and a strong burden to provide for the needs of their family? I, I would hope not. Because if you're a man and you have zero desire to provide for the members of your household, here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.8. Paul says, if, if you do not provide for the needs of your family, you have denied the faith and you are worse than an unbeliever. Straight from the Bible, from Paul's mouth. Heavy and a, and a hard charge. But I, I've yet to come across a father that does not feel this burden. At least one that would admit it. <laughs> If there's an unbeliever who feels the burden to provide for the needs of his family, and you do not, according to the Apostle Paul, you who profess to know Christ are worse. If we feel that burden as earthly fathers to provide, if we feel that burden, does not God feel it even more so? And is he not to deliver in a way that we are unable to? I can tell you, as, as having been a father for six years, it's hard. You know, it's hard and my, my resources are limited. My time is limited. My energy is limited, but God's is not. He is able to provide all these things for us. This is why he tells us not to be anxious about these things, but instead seek the righteousness of God first and all those things that the Gentiles are chasing after and desiring, you will have. Look at verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I, I struggle with this, and I'm, maybe some of you do as well, because as I said a couple weeks ago, we're, we're very practical. So when it comes to trying to obtain all these things, I think we do it through very practical means. We don't often come to God with what we're anxious about and what we're concerned about in the future, but instead we think, how can I solve this problem? Maybe some of us are planners and we immediately try to figure out, well, how am I going to get to A, B, C, D? And we oftentimes, God is the last resort, never the first. But can we do a better job at meeting our needs than God can? All of what we do to build wealth in our lives could be absolutely destroyed in a matter of seconds by a crippling recession. Some of you hear that and your mind is already stuck in a web of anxiety figuring out how you could truly establish security for yourself and your family in the future. And you're probably not listening much anymore, but... Your hypothetical doomsday bunker can wait. We're almost done. Stay with me just for a little bit longer. We're closing up soon. There are many things outside your control, but there is nothing outside of God's control. Knowing this, knowing our inability to secure our own future and the fact that God has already established it in such a way as, as to, it even says in the scripture, for his own glory, yes, which is great. We want God to get glory. He, he's worthy of it. He deserves it for everything he's done for us and having created us and having rescued us. However, he goes on to say for the good of his people, not only is he orchestrating all things together to lift up his name and magnify his glory in the world, but also for your good. If you, if you are one of Christ's people, if you have put your faith in Christ and your hope for salvation, he's also working all of human history for your good as well. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Jesus has been talking about it and he's been bringing it all throughout his sermon and his ministry. The kingdom of God can be found in all the ways in which we share the love of God with others. 
when we obey his commandments, sometimes it sounds so simple, but a commandment like don't covet, don't covet your neighbor's stuff, don't steal, don't commit adultery with your, your, with your neighbor. Like these are very simple commands. And it's like, that's loving people. It's like, like, yes, all of the commandments that God had given us were examples of how to love. There's even examples in the Old Testament of how to keep your property safe so that when people come onto it, they don't get hurt. He's even called us to care for the orphans, the widows, the fatherless, the oppressed, the sojourner, the poor. The kingdom, when we, when we have concern for these things, the kingdom of God is growing here on earth. Then it says, seek his righteousness. How do you seek the righteousness of God? Where would one even find such a thing? What is the righteousness of God? Where do we find it? Well, Paul actually says in Romans 3.21 that God has actually made his righteous manifest. He's revealed it to us. He's delivered it to us. It's here. And the righteousness that he's talking about, Paul goes on to say, is given through faith in Christ to all who believe. Seeking the righteousness of God is just seeking Christ. It's growing in a greater and greater trust in the righteousness of Christ. Not looking to your own work, but growing in, a, in rest and trust in what Jesus has done for you. Growing in greater peace. When that peace grows in your life and facing what God has determined you walk through in this life, it's not saying that your life will be peaceful, but it's saying that no matter what circumstance you go into, the peace of Christ will, that, uh, that Paul talks about that surpasses all understanding will go with you. When we grow in trusting all that Christ has done for us, we are actively seeking the righteousness of Christ. Through faith, Christ's righteousness has already been given to us. We haven't lost it. Sometimes it may feel that way as we go through different circumstances. Sometimes we forget it's there in the full glorious measure that it is, but that's why we constantly run back to the gospel. That's why every single Sunday we come here and we're reminded of the gospel. When we have our community groups, we're reminded of the gospel. The hope is that even in our marriages, we're able to point one another to the gospel and our friendships and our relationships, we're able to remind one another of what we are now in Christ, that we have that peace. When we go through all the different things that we worry about, that God has it all under control. And if you're called to be one of his people, he's working all things together for your good. There is no king that has ever been or ever will be richer than your heavenly father. All these things that you could be concerned about, there's nothing that you're going to miss out on as a child of the father. Have you guys heard the term FOMO? Raise your hand if you know what FOMO is. Oh, wow, that's a lot of people. I didn't expect so many people to know what FOMO is. <laughs> it's a modern term. It means fear of missing out, right? Many people in our culture talk about the fear of missing out. They, they don't want to miss out on a lot of different things. The truth is, there's many different things we're going to miss out on. I, I was even telling this to Nicole. There's a, there's a video game I played as a kid that they recently remade, but they only remade the first part of it. And it took them like 10 years. It took them like a long time. And we're talking about maybe one fifth of the full game. And it's a constant joke. And it's the reality. Many people aren't going to be able to experience that full remake before it's finally done. The, the company that's producing it is taking so long. Many of the people that are really excited to, to play this and experience it, they're going to die before they even finish the thing, which is funny. Well, it's not funny. It's kind of sad. They really wanted to play this. There's no way it's going to be finished before they actually die because this was a game created in 1997. So a lot of the people that played it when they were a kid are in their 30s and 40s now. By the time they actually get the full thing out, none of us are going to be around to experience it. And there's many things like that. There's many shows that we're watching now that if you're a fan of Star Wars, you will never watch every single movie that comes out for that thing. I'm sure you will die before they stop making Star Wars movies. You'll never get to experience all that. And there's all different other kinds of things that we, we're going to miss out on in this life. I never grew up with a mother. That is something I will never experience growing up with a mother in my home and knowing what that's like to have a mother in my life. I won't know what that's like. 
Some of us grew up without a father. Some of us grew up without both. Some of us aren't going to get married. Some of us won't have children. There's many things we'll miss out on this life, but there is nothing we will miss out in this life that we won't receive eternally more or infinitely more in eternity with God. He is far richer than any power in this earth and is able to give us far more than we can even imagine. We see now through a mere dimly what God is orchestrating and bringing together for his people, but one day the fullness of that will be manifested with us in glory with God. So all these, the, the things that we worry about in this life and, and have undue concern for in the future, we can rest in the peace of the gospel. All the beautiful aspects of the gospel. Not only have we been forgiven of our sins, not only have we been brought into relationship with God, but he's going to bless us, not only in this life, but in the life to come. There's much joyful expectation to be looking forward into the future with. And I'll just close with this. In verse 25, we started with therefore. And in verse 34, we're ending with therefore. therefore Jesus has said all these things. The Gentiles search after all these things. They desire all these things. Don't worry about them. God will give them to you. Seek first his righteousness. Look for the gospel. Look for the kingdom breaking through in this earth. Because of all that, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Because of who you are now in Christ, because you're the son or daughter of the only living God, because you have a kingdom you've been called into that is infinitely better than any man-made kingdom you or I or anyone else could ever establish. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Amen? Let's pray. God, I confess this is a hard teaching. It's hard, especially as a, as a father of four kids, to not be concerned about the future. Food and clothing. Not only what, what I will eat and drink and wear, but my kids and my wife, what, what we're going to do in the future to provide for our, our, our needs. This is hard to accept and live out, God. But I, I pray that we would all grow in our understanding of the gospel, that we would be able to rest in the peace that you have in whatever situation we find ourselves in. Whatever circumstance we're going through, whatever trial we may be facing, uh, whether we're in plenty or whether we're in need, we pray that the gospel would bring us peace. What you've done for us in calling us into your kingdom, reconciling us and the great hope we have. I, I pray that instead of worry we would have for the future, it would be hope, joyful hope in what you're doing, God. I pray that you would do this work in our hearts now. We love you, God. Amen.